Hello and welcome to the History Today podcast for June 2015. In this episode, we've got Magna Carta, more Magna Carta, and the Medals of the Sun King. Firstly, a quick mention that the July issue of History Today should be hitting newsstands and subscribers' doormats this week. The July issue is a Magna Carta special and also has articles on the history of automata, multiculturalism in the Middle Ages, the Armenian Genocide, and the Weimar Republic. The issue is also available to download now via the History Today app. Now on with the show. First up is Alexander Locke, curator of modern historical manuscripts at the British Library, who's written an article for the July issue of History Today about the importance of Magna Carta in the United States. He's joined by History Today editor Paul Lay, who began by asking, what's the reason for Magna Carta's transatlantic popularity? Well, I suppose the, um, the, the foundations for, for why it's so, so incredibly popular in the United States are because, because of its, its, its basis or in, in, in some of their foundational charters um, for, for the colonies and their colonial charters, um, particularly beginning in, in 1606 with um, the Charter for Virginia by, drafted by Sir Edward Cook, which for the first time extends the, the liberties and franchises of British law to the North American continent. So from that, they sort of, they develop and build their own law codes based upon uh, ideas about Magna Carta, about individual liberty. And then this later is used to challenge um, sort of what they see as, 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 um, as British, um, as British tyranny during the, the American Wars of Independence, sort of using the Magna Carta as a, as a symbol of, of, of liberty against tyrannical rulers and then it becomes sort of a, a sort of a foundational blueprint for their for their own declaration of independence and subsequent bill of rights now of course much of magna carta refers to rights and ideas that are very very specific to the early 13th century um what is it that the americans take these early uh, american colonists take uh, specifically from magna carta and, and which develops ultimately i suppose with the uh, us constitution well the, the key the, the key clause in the court the key clauses in Magna Carta particularly is that of thirty nine and forty, which um, which I, I look here they've the clause thirty nine is this idea that no free man will be taken or imprisoned or decised or outlawed or exiled or in any way ruined nor shall we go or send against him save by the lawful judgment of his peers and by the law of the land. And Article uh, Clause 40 looks uh, argues that to no one shall we sell, to no one shall we deny or delay right or justice. And that those two are the key clauses which many of these Americans, early colonists take and put into their own law codes, this idea of individual liberty um, against any executive power. But interestingly, Clause 14 of Magna Carta became very important during the American Wars of Independence. And Clause 14 writes um, that King John will agree to obtain the common counsel of the realm for the assessment of an aid, except in the three cases of aforesaid or of scutage, we will have archbishops, bishops, abbots, earls, and great barons. So this idea that even in clause 12 as well, that no scutage or aid is to be levied in our realm except by the common council of our realm, this idea that uh, taxation um, can only be raised by common council became a a key foundation for this idea of no no taxation without representation about which the American colonists fought. Which, which is absolutely crucial um, to, to the 
the founding of, of, of the modern United States, of course. Absolutely. Um, can you explain to us in some way, I, I, I think there's a sense in which in the 17th century there was something of a revival. You mentioned Cook in, in interest in Magna Carta in England itself. Um, so in a sense, it's a kind of fortunate timing, if we, if we wish to express it in that way, uh, between the revival of interest in England and then it, it, it's, its transference to the United States. So that, that, that they combine it somewhere. Why was there that revival of interest? Can we explain that? Well, uh, it, it's fascinating. It, 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 yes, it, and I think the 17th century is, is the key period for this, where, where there is a, a great revival of interest, as you say, in 17th century England with, with people like Sir Edward Cook challenging um, the, the overarching you know, um, authority of the monarch, particularly with James I and Charles I, whose ideas of divine right kingship was you know, representing a fundamental threat to the independence of the judiciary and the independence of parliament. And... What at the same time that these debates and discussions are being taken taking place in Parliament and the and, and, and the courts in, in 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 England, they're being transplanted by the people who are who are engaged in this, those same debates yeah. on the North American continent. Hence Virginia, of course, with the Virginia Company being there as well, which is crucial to them. Absolutely, well. absolutely, yeah, and and, and of course the, the first Charter of Virginia of 1606 is that drafted by Sir Edward Cook, and Sir Edward Cook, um, I think for for for, for for both in England and in North America, is, is, is the key linchpin. He's the man that really revives interest in Magna Carta in the early 17th century, particularly to challenge the, the sort of divine right of kings idea, the executive, the overarching executive power of, of the monarch. And in, in that, he, he engages with Magna Carta, this idea that no one can be imprisoned without um, trial by jury, that everyone should have access to, um, to a fair trial. And that these ideas in challenging the monarch become fundamental to the idea of English liberty, which he then exports in 1606. And so, in a sense, the, the struggles that took place in England and in Britain in the 17th century anticipate those that, that are later uh, practised in mid-18th century, a, a hundred years later in a way. Absolutely. Which I suppose is a bit like um, Jonathan Clark's point about that modern America is a kind of counterfactual to England, that it's what England would have become had the other side won or persisted in, in in that sense, had, had, had England remained a republic or a commonwealth, whatever. Yes. Um, so who were the principal authors of this transition during the 18th century here? Who Obviously, we've mentioned Cook. Uh, we've talked about the uh, individual states um, codifying uh, Magna Carta in some sense. Who were the principal authors of it becoming a national phenomenon in the United States with the Constitution? Well, in terms of, of the 18th century, I suppose... Some of the key figures would be someone like Jefferson, who again is in his in his drafting of of, of the Declaration of Independence is is all the time looking back to ideas that well you know a range of ideas people like Locke and and and, and people like that, but also looking towards this idea about the you know the fundamental laws and liberties of of, of Britons, and in that he's looking to Cook. He's you know the, these lawyers of of all the the signatories to the Declaration, you know, over half of them were lawyers and they would have all been schooled and understood uh, this, this Cookian idea of, of Magna Carta. And the relationship to, to common law. Yes, the relationship to, to common law and individual liberty against the arbitrary power of a despot, which is what they transpose King George III to be. 
So George III is very similar to Charles I for them in terms of, of, of raising taxation without, you know, without, you know, without their consent, in terms of uh, holding trials without jury in these, these admiralty courts. And, you know, so, you know, and, and they're looking back to, to present of that and in King John, and, and they're one of their strongest um, precedents of that is Magna Carta, which they look to. And, and, you know, in several cases in the Declaration of Independence, they, they mention, they discuss you know, certain, certain aspects of Magna Carta in it. So this idea that trial by trial by jury or not, not having access to a fair trial, George III is, is restricting that, that it, without allowing them to vote in their own taxation, George III is, 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 is acting tyrannically towards them. So whilst there's sort of gradual developments of, of, of a parliamentary system in Great Britain, the Americans aren't experiencing that. Mm-hmm. And they, they look to precedents first with Cook, then further back to Magna Carta of their, their own rights as Englishmen, mm-hmm. um, as they see themselves, and that that's, you know, that's where they, they should begin. And do you think um, these things are incorporated in the, in the Constitution? There's, there's an air of fetishization, perhaps, in the American experience. If we look, if there's one extreme... Uh, in Britain, whereas Magna Carta is relatively neglected, despite the admirable work the British Library does and various <laughs> other people in talking about its importance. But then again, it is historically something that's very much of its time. Uh, only a few clauses have this resonance that continues to this day. Um, is it a fair charge that the United States fetishizes it or at least mythologizes Magna Carta a great deal? I, I think I think you can argue that yes, it is, it is a, you know, a, a mythology, or it's it's a um, is a certain interpretation of Magna Carta, and that interpretation is based upon Sir Edward Cook, and to some extent, it's Cook that reinterprets Magna Carta, from which we all take it. But you know, in in in, in Great Britain today, it's perhaps less less vaunted than the way it is in, in America. I mean, if you look at the, the United States Supreme Court doors, there's, there's mm. symbolism of Magna Carta, the north north wall freeze in, in the Supreme Court chamber. Again, vaunts Magna Carta. It's painted on murals across across the country in, 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 in town halls. And, you know, even if you visit Runnymede itself, you see that the, the, the site of Runnymede is almost an American... Um, celebration with the Magna American Carta. Bar Association. Absolutely, yeah. The greatest monument there is is an American monument. Mm. And John Kennedy has a, has a memorial there. So yes, there is a, a fetishization, and I think it's about this, these ideas of individual liberty, and it's I think America took a divergent path with Magna Carta. They had a revolution and they maintained a republican government, which to some extent saw its basis or justification legitimation. In Magna Carta, so yes, from that there is a a, a, you know, a long trajectory um, of a you know a, a fetishization and interpretation in a certain way of Magna Carta. Yeah, absolutely. It makes it very different from the French Revolution, though, doesn't it? I mean, if we if we look at the French Revolution, there is that attempt to build the world anew. Uh, yeah. Whereas, if if this interpretation is right, and there's no reason to think it's not, the American Constitution is very much historically fixed. It looks, it traces its roots far back, however accurate that history mm. may be. Nevertheless, it is historicized in that way. And I suppose the fact, the strong link with common law, which is very much a historically aware kind of codification, m- must make that apparent too, that this is an historical uh, calling almost that, the, that America has towards Absolutely. its constitution. Absolutely, yeah, it, it appears to draw on 
on you know on past documents, on 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 precedents set in common law, and of a range of 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 other Enlightenment ideas, people like Locke and these ideas of fundamental law. And I think that's that is something quite interesting that they take uh, a document that is, you know Magna Carta that is drafted that is then reinterpreted by someone like Edward Cook. But the way that the Americans um, through their own colonial charters in setting up a, an initial country with this document almost fetishize it and make it into almost a fundamental law that is applicable not just to Englanders or Britons, but internationally applicable. And I think that's very interesting. So, so yes, they're not sweeping anything away, but in the same, in the same breath, they're making something new of that which is old. And I think that's very interesting, mm. interesting use of Magna Carta to make it almost fundamental law, to be almost law time immemorial, mm. immemorial. Mm-hmm. Which is yeah, very interesting and, and very revolutionary as well, yeah, but in a different yeah. sense but, too. But in a very circle yeah. of like, uh, yeah, the idea of time out of mind, I suppose. Yes, yeah, exactly. Absolutely. That. Well, thank you, Alexander, for that. Um, all these uh, issues are explored in Alexander Locke's article on Magna Carta's Atlantic Crossing um, in the July edition of History Today. Thank you, Alexander. Thank you. Thank you, Alexander Locke. There. Now to the British Museum. Here's Rhys Griffiths with more. The reign of Louis XIV witnessed a state-led image management project that included the production of portraits, statues and grand architectural works like the Palace of Versailles and the rebuilding of the Louvre. It also witnessed the production of nearly 500 medals designed to represent the major events of the King's reign in bronze for posterity, culminating in 1702 with the publication of the medallic history in book form. Marking the tercentenary of Louis' death, the British Museum is hosting a display, Triumph and Disaster, Medals of the Sun King, exploring the medallic history's production and impact. Its curator Mark Jones gave us a tour. The medallic history is a self-portrait. Louis XIV wrote in his own memoirs that as a king, he owed an account of his reign to what he called the universe, to everybody and to posterity. So although he was an absolute monarch and he didn't feel that he owed an account to the estates or to to the parliaments of France, he did feel that he owed an account to posterity, and that's what we have. He grew up during the Fronde, so when he was a teenager, France was in chaos, royal authority was under challenge, Um, uh, the parliaments were claiming that they could strike down any laws, there was a strong general demand for the recall of the estates general in the French parliament. Um, which would have gone ahead, I think, if um, uh, if the English hadn't chopped off Charles I's head. So, I mean, order was incredibly important, and so he he understood the happiness of France to lie in part in strong government that kept order. Here you can see more about how the medals are made. You make dyes, they're cut in steel, and then before they were hardened so that they could be approved, they made strikings from the dyes in soft metal, in lead or tin. Uh, and when those had been approved, they hardened the dyes and then they could strike the final metals. The next bit of the exhibition deals really with how the medallic history was done. You had to choose a subject, of course, and they had a little academy set up, especially to choose the right subjects for the history. They wrote descriptions of the events that they wanted to commemorate. They submitted them to their minister so that he could approve them, and the minister, in his turn, submitted them to the king. One of the um, one of the kind of 
problems for the, for the little academy, for the people who were responsible for this, was, well, how would you actually represent? What was the correct way of representing the king? And this was a period when there was a very lively disagreement, a, a quarrel between those who believed in the virtues of modernity and those who believed that antiquity was always best. Charles Perrault, who was the um, first secretary of the Little Academy, he was, a, he was a modernizer, he was a modernist. He thought modern times were best. He thought Louis XIV was greater than any of the Roman emperors. And to begin with, he got his way. Some of the, the early medals tend to show Louis in, in that case, contemporary armor, wearing a lace cravat. So that is as he might have appeared um, to contemporaries. But as the project went on, increasingly they wanted to represent him as though he were a Roman emperor. Mm -hmm. You can see up there he's represented as Apollo driving the chariot of the sun. Here he's a Roman emperor with a plumed helmet and a baton showing that he's in command. Here he is as a Roman soldier driving a chariot. So a lot of the time he was represented as though he were um, a Roman. But particularly um, as things began to go rather wrong for Louis, um, and as you know, succeeding wars proved very expensive, um, the French state reached a period um, at the beginning of the 1690s when all the royal silver, actually all the silver in France, had to be melted down in order to pay the troops. So what we're talking about is a real problem with the state budget. Um, and it's ex exactly that moment that the whole royal administration, well, not the whole royal administration, but the relevant bit of the royal administration focused very intently on this medallic history. Louis XIV, when he moved into Versailles, took with him the royal medal collection, by which, and that means the collection of ancient coins as well as modern medals. He kept them in the Cabinet du Roi, which was his most personal and private room, and he was fascinated by them. He spent, you know, every day he would come in and talk to the person who was arranging the collection, and he would often bring visitors and so on to talk to them. So for him, you know, medals were one of his enthusiasms. I mean, he had many enthusiasms, it's fair to say. I mean, he loved, you know, the work of Jean Racine. He was a great enthusiast for Molière. Um, he was very knowledgeable about music. But medals were certainly one of the things that he loved. You see increasingly medals being made in the Low Countries, in Germany and in England, which kind of challenge the story being put out by the French. So clearly, people arrayed against him were concerned by the impact that Louis' medals were making. Many of them, like these ones up here, um, just attack him directly. So they say something like, Louis, the decrepit oppressor, William, the successful liberator. So it's making a you know, comparison between William III and Louis. And there you can see a French medal, which shows Louis XIV having defeated the Bay of Algiers. And here, slightly harder to see, you've got Louis XIV prostrate in front of the Bay of Algiers. And they're clearly playing off against the official medals. Triumph and disaster, medals of the Sun King, is at the British Museum in London until November 2015. Lauren Johnson, an author and historian who is currently working on a book exploring daily life in England in the year 1509, joined us to discuss women and Magna Carta. She speaks here with History Today contributing editor Kate Wiles. So what can you tell us, first of all, set the scene about what kind of position women were in at the time? Well, in 1215, the simple version of events is just that women were in an inferior position. So 
biblically, medically, morally, legally, in all ways, women were seen as inferior to men. So if you were a wife, for instance, then all of your goods, uh, all of your property or land would belong legally to your husband. You couldn't even make a will as a married woman. Uh, And as a single woman, it was probably even worse. So there's a, a continuing sense that women should be inferior as well as actively being inferior. In actual fact, there are a number of women who do manage to gain positions of authority that are kind of equivalent to the status of men at that time. But many of them are women who, for one reason or another, have become single and independent. So they're widows, perhaps they're abbesses, they're women who are operating under their own kind of ages. Yeah. Or um, yeah, widows are continuing the role and the power that they had when they were married. Yes. And in many ways, expanding on it, because once you're a widow, you have actually quite a few avenues open up to you. First of all, you get a dower. So you get a third of your husband's uh, lands, which is usually the lands at his death, sometimes at the time of marriage. Uh, You also might get a traditional uh, endowment of land from him, and you probably have some control over your children. The other advantage, of course, is that as a widow, you'll be living on your own estate, administering them by yourself. Uh, You'll be able to make a will. You'll be able to do what you want with that property. Um, And so really suddenly, widows will have a lot more authority. And how does that um, work with the role of the particular women involved around Magna Carta? We've got some quite notable widows, obviously, wielding a lot of power in the lead up to the production of Magna Carta. Yes. So there's some women in slightly peculiar positions in relation to Magna Carta. One of the most interesting, I think, is um, Isabella of Gloucester, who had been John's first wife. She had had a very strange position in relation to the Plantagenet family. She was an heiress with her sisters originally, and that was that tended to be what happened. If there were no sons, an estate would be divided between the existing daughters. Uh, in actual fact, because Henry II, John's father, wanted to get his hands on Isabella's lands, she became sole heiress when she was betrothed to John as a child. Uh, then Henry II held on to her estates for years and years and years and years. Uh, when she married John, it wasn't a particularly happy union, perhaps unsurprisingly, because John wasn't a tremendous human being, never mind husband. Uh, and eventually they were divorced because conveniently they were related. After that point, she's in a really weird limbo state for a while where she's kept as a ward essentially of John. She lives sometimes with his second wife. Uh, so she really has no authority at all. She's forced into a marriage with one of the men that John is really trying to control, a man called Geoffrey de Mandeville, who becomes one of the prominent rebel barons. And in 1214, he's forced to pay an enormous sum of money to marry her, basically in order that John can control Geoffrey de Mandeville. But two years later, in a jousting accident, Geoffrey de Mandeville is killed. And Isabella suddenly actually has, for a very brief period of time, real authority as a woman. And she, uh, her charters are given out. She says that she is the Countess of Gloucester in, in her free widowhood. And that sense is, is really important, I think, because free widowhood was um, kind of the whole function of it, was that suddenly you had independence and power in your own right. And wielding political power there. There's yeah. also um, Nicola de la Haye was, had a lot of political power, actually bestowed by John rather than defaulted, I think. Yes. Nicola de la Haye is extremely unusual because she seems to have been a woman who had a reasonable relationship with John for many, many years as well. Uh, even during her marriage, actually, she had quite a lot of authority in her own right. And this is something that can be forgotten when we think about, oh, women had an inferior position in marriage. If that marriage worked, then, and the man had a lot of respect for his wife, uh, and particularly if he was away 
you know, defending other castles, going on crusade, uh, as Lord would want to do in those times, then it could be that his wife would be left in control of all of that territory by herself. And that's what happens to Nicola, is she is sort of left to administer her estates. Um, perhaps this is because Nicola brings a vast estate to her marriage, uh, to her husband, um, because she is she has a claim on an inheritance to pretty much all of Lincolnshire, a claim to be sheriff of Lincolnshire, a claim to be castellan of Lincoln Castle, um, and her husband kind of just lets her get on with that. Even um, during uh, one of John, when he was prince, one of his rebellions in 1191, uh, she actually controls Lincoln Castle in his name for 40 days against a royal siege. We also see um, diplomacy coming into it quite a lot that um, Joan, John's illegitimate daughter, I believe, was kind of acting as an intermediary between Wales and England. Yes, yeah, absolutely. So Joan is married off to um, Llewellyn Apiorath. Am I saying that right? We'll find out eventually. <laughs> uh, who is the Prince of Gwyneth, I believe, who is one of the premier princes. And he kind of gets uh, a lot of John's patronage among the Welsh princes. Uh, but of course, he does ultimately get sort of in, involved in the various rebellions that are going on in Wales in the early 1210s. Uh, and Joan acts throughout that time as an intermediary between the Welsh rebels and John. She also, in 1212, she sends John a message warning him that there's a plot against his life. So again, a woman who is loyal to John, obviously she has a family connection to him, but that loyalty is maintained even after she's married and has moved away from court. So he has women both on his side and against him, yeah. which I think I wanted to talk about um, Isabella d'Angoulême as well, his wife, his second wife, um, which, depending on which source you read, I think, is either for or against him. Yes, and is either <laughs> imprisoned by him or lovingly yes. protected in a castle by him. <clears throat> so she is, again, uh, seemingly, you would think, just a kind of the classical pawn figure, really. She is... Um, Married when she's very young, possibly 12, maybe even as young as nine. Uh, the marriage to John leads to a basically the outbreak of war across a lot of France um, in various complex diplomatic ways that ultimately ends in John losing most of his northern French territories. Um, but despite being very young, Isabella clearly is quite a forceful personality. I mean, perhaps that's unsurprising. If your mother-in-law is Ella of Aquitaine, maybe you pick up some tricks <laughs> over the years about how to behave. Um, there are various rumours that go around about Isabel. You know, she's described as more Jezebel than Isabel, that she has a, adulterous affairs, that her lovers are murdered on her bed. That's probably not true. Witchcraft. Oh yeah, witchcraft, yep. of course. Well, I mean, there'd be no point if there wasn't a charge of witchcraft and incest, really. Um, all of those things, there's not really enough evidence to say that that definitely went on. It wouldn't be perhaps surprising if she committed adultery, given that John himself has many mistresses before his marriage and probably throughout it. Um, but certainly she is, a very close watch is kept over her, especially during the period after she has had um, John's heir, who becomes Henry III, as the country descends into civil war. Now, she's taken to Corfe Castle at one point, and this is what makes me think that maybe it's more of an imprisonment than any sort of more benign protection, because Corfe Castle is intimately associated in John's reign with people being starved to death and murdered and hostages being held there uh, and ultimately terrible things happening to them. So lots of women playing a variety of roles, all kind of closely interconnected with John and his barons. Um how is that then reflected in Magna Carta? Because obviously we know about kind of rights of man is always talked about, but what about the women? How are they dealt with? 
Uh, well, unsurprisingly, given that the most powerful women in England are widows, almost all of the clauses that refer to women in Magna Carta are about widows. There's four clauses that sort of directly link into what uh, widows' rights will be. Um, perhaps the most uh, relevant are clauses seven and eight, which says the seven is... Um, so clause seven is that at her husband's death, a widow may have her marriage portion and inheritance at once and without any trouble. Uh, she can she won't have to pay anything to inherit her dower, her marriage portion, her inheritance, and she can remain in her husband's house for 40 days after his death. So having that uh, is obviously extremely important to widows because it means that they will not have to pay a huge fee in order to inherit what is rightfully theirs. And of course, that's something that runs throughout Magna Carta is this idea that John is sort of squeezing all of the barons for as much feudal relief as he can. Uh, And the other really important one, uh, and this has become a major problem under the Plantagenet rulers, uh, Clause 8 says that no widow shall be compelled to marry so long as she wishes to remain without a husband. Uh, basically, she just has to get the king's consent. And then she can carry on wielding autonomous power. Exactly. Um, or choose a husband for herself. Yeah. Indeed. And that's been a really big problem because it's the situation with regards to widows being forcibly remarried has got worse and worse in the past 20, 30 years before Magna Carta, to the extent that Henry II, who's John's father, uh, actually drew up a register of orphaned heirs and heiresses and widows who are in the king's gift. It's basically, it's like a shopping list. So it says what, what rights the king has over these, um, these people who are supposedly under his protection. But it means that he is immediately aware of how much a widow's estate is worth, uh, how what their situation is with regard to heirs, who he can palm off onto his favourites, who he can maybe control by controlling their marriage, uh, and how much he might want to charge yeah. for their marriage to his favourites. So what would you say then about the uh, role of women, the female influence on the production of Magna Carta? I think the big thing to remember is that obviously this is, this seems to be a document that is just steeped in machismo. When we think of Magna Carta, we have this mental image of a load of bearded barons standing around with swords pointed at a sort of weedy King John. Uh, there's no women in our mental image of Magna Carta. But actually, clearly, women did matter because there's these four different clauses that are explicitly um, protecting the rights of widows, of women. There are other clauses that could just as well apply to them to do with wardships and heirs, uh, also to do with promises that John won't you know, take people's cart or wood to build castle without getting the permission of whoever owns it. That could equally as well be a woman as it could a man. Um, and we sometimes forget that this is a population that's half female. And and even among the barons who are warlords, who are steeped in a culture that might seem to suggest that women should always be inferior, they will have seen around them, they might perhaps have, they will have seen around them these examples of strong women. So they might have gone to court with their mother-in-law, for instance, at some point to try and regain an estate. Or um, they might simply care about their daughter or their sister whose rights they want to protect. So I just do not think it is possible that Magna Carta could have been made completely absent with any influence from women who were involved in the lives of these men. Not in a vacuum. Exactly. Um, And then how do women benefit from these clauses then? Is there kind of a material gain noticeable? Uh, There is some material gain. It's worth saying that one of the clauses of Magna Carta actually reduces women's rights, which is clause 54, that no one shall be arrested or imprisoned on the appeal of a woman for the death of any person except her husband. Now, clearly what's been going on previously is that women have been appealing, that is, um, uh, putting forward cases uh, for 
um, justice which are beyond that remit. Now that's been completely limited so that women only have one thing that they can really complain to the courts about. But when it comes to dower rights, I think it's fair to say that there is some improvement. So in John's reign, I think 149 women pay to maintain uh, their single state. Um, And in Henry III's reign, that, that number is vastly reduced. It's also interesting that the examples we have where men are going to the king asking for consent to marry, there are occasions when explicitly the king says, you can get married to this woman, but only if you prove that you have her consent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in other cases, it seems look like that consent is already in existence, uh, but the man is now going to the second step of getting the king's permission. And the big thing is that whereas John, Richard, Henry II, whereas they were perhaps distraining women, whereas they were stealing their estates and chattels and so on, like Howis of Omal, to control the women, um, that right is now gone in Magna Carta. So instead, the only power that really kings have is to not give permission. If they don't give permission to a marriage, it can't go ahead and a woman might be forced to stay single, but they can't now force women into marriage in theory. In theory. So that even though Magna Carta didn't survive beyond 10 weeks in that form, it had kind of, it put a stop to certain practice, maybe highlighted that it had gone too far. Yes, it it definitely created a precedent, which because Henry III keeps reissuing Magna Carta, it's very noticeable that in, during his reign, there is such a drop off in um, these mistreatments of rights to dower and rights to remarriage freely. Our thanks there to Lauren Johnson. And that's all for this episode. The July issue of History Today is out this week and it's a Magna Carta special, which we very much hope you will enjoy. The podcast will be back next month. Thanks for listening.